Let's go before the Lord in prayer. We're going to be in 1 Timothy today, chapter 3. Father, we are appreciative of uh, this space. We're blessed by uh, the fellowship that we can enjoy with one another. We're grateful for the work of your spirit, Lord, to draw us to yourself. We thank you for the gift of your holy word that we can sit under. And Lord, we believe that your word is alive, it's living, it's active. We believe that it has the ability to cut down past all of the, the walls and the masks and those, uh, those walls that sin can build up and get down into the depth of things and speak to us. And Lord, that's what we're asking. Certainly, Lord, uh, there's knowledge and material that we need to understand and pick up. But Lord, we want to hear from your Holy Spirit the truth of these words and, what, and the way in which your Holy Spirit is working in us. And Lord, how awesome that each one of us are individuals, different place in our walks with you, some newer, some older, some further along, some uh, just getting started. And yet your Holy Spirit can take the same words on a piece of paper and use them to transform us for where we are at this moment in time. So, Lord, we enter now into really this holy place where we come into your presence to hear from you. And so, Lord, bless your word powerfully once more, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're making our way through the book of 1 Timothy. If you haven't been with us, uh, you might go back and reread uh, the first couple chapters, maybe listen to some of those messages that we've posted online. But as we came to chapter 2, we came to those sort of those regulations that Paul put in place. Remember, Paul was trying to create or help Timothy to create this orderly congregation, this church. Things had gone out of order. Timothy, I need you to go there and put them back into order. And, and in doing that, he gave him some regulations about things. And one of those that we spent our time considering uh, those regulations is, well, who's going to oversee them? All right, so you put these kind of these rules in place. Who's going to oversee them? Well, that's who he's going to address today, those, those and what the qualifications for those individuals would be. Now, among other things, Paul had just written in chapter 2 that the women were not to possess the spiritual or the doctrinal authority over a congregation. And we spent our time considering what that meant and what it looked like. Now, that was not, however to give the impression that just any old man could. All right, as long as you're a man, you'll be fine. That's not the impression that Paul was seeking to give. No man is qualified to be the spiritual leader of a congregation solely by the fact that he is a man. And so here now, as we come to chapter 3, Paul is going to lay out the qualifications of those individuals, those men that should be placed in that position. Now, there are three sections to chapter 3. The first section is going to be with those that are called the elders. The second section will dig into the deacons. And then there's a third section as well, which we'll, we'll be getting to in a few weeks. It's those positions of elders and deacons that we're going to draw our attention to this week and, and the next time we come together in this book. So Paul's going to address the elders of a congregation, verses 1 through 7, and the deacons of a congregation in verses 8 through 17, or 7, I should say. It, later, it goes on. You'll see. Let's read verse 1. 
It says, now this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an observer must be above reproach, an, el an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Verse 3, he must not be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping chil his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. The qualifications of an elder. Four main prerequisites, if you will, for the person that's going to serve in that position. And they are, they could be broken down into this. Personal character, the person's home life, the person's aptitude to teach, and their personal experience. Now, depending on the version that you are reading, there's going to be either 15 or 16 different qualifications. Some versions kind of combine one of them into one big one. Others separate them. So depending on the version you're reading, there's either 15 or 16 different qualifications that a man must meet if he is expected to serve in that leadership role of a congregation. Now, quickly... As we go back, let me just go back through them. Look at verse 2. Very quickly, we'll come back and talk about them more. He has to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. That's verse 2. Verse 3, he must not be a drunkard. He must not be violent, but instead gentle. He must not be quarrelsome, and he must not be a lover of money. And then in verses 4, 6, and 7, he needs to manage his own household well, not be a recent convert, and be well thought of by outsiders, those that aren't even a part of the congregation that he is going to be leading. Now notice there a couple things. Paul makes no mention of education. He makes no mention of worldly success. He makes no mention of financial success. He doesn't talk about the person's charisma and, and ability to attract people to himself. He, he doesn't really even mention giftedness, or he doesn't even mention giftedness in that section. His list, it solely focuses on the person's character. And the point there that is important for us and that Paul is making clear that if a person is going to lead other people properly, that they first have to demonstrate that they can lead themselves properly. No mention of any special, special training or spiritual uh, gifting, but what he does emphasize is that they have to be people of sincere character who live lives that can serve as an example to other people. Now, perhaps you're sitting here today, and I, I read through that section on this is what an elder needs to be, and, and perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm not an elder. I don't plan to be an elder. I have no desire to be an elder, so I don't really think this material is going to speak to me. Or I don't think this is something I need to be at, and maybe there's a seat available at the cafe, and I'll head over there for service this morning. If that's what you're thinking, let me challenge that thinking just a little bit. 
Because first, whether you will ever be an elder or not, or you currently are an elder, it doesn't negate the fact that you are part of a church that is governed by a board of elders. And so it's good that we all know what are the expectations of those individuals. So at the very least, what this passage can serve is to provide you with an understanding of the type of person those elders should be. That's one reason why, even if it may not specifically apply to you, you should pay attention. Secondly, I'd say this. Okay, you're not an elder right now. You don't have any anticipation of becoming one. Secondly, I would say this. One never knows. Never knows what the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years of your life will hold. I never had any expectation of serving as a, a pastor of a church or an elder of a congregation. I just wanted to make sure the kids came to know Jesus. And so I volunteered and served there. And the next thing you know, this, and the next thing you know, that, and so on and so forth. Again, you go back to that idea, one never knows. And since one never knows, it may be a good idea for you to look at these qualifications and begin to apply them to your life. And then the last point I would say is this. Again, if you're looking at this material and thinking, you know, this really isn't applicable to my life, I'm not an elder and I have no anticipation of becoming one, well, then I'll just point this simply out. At the very least, what we have in this passage are the character traits of a mature Christian. And I would certainly hope that's the goal of every one of us here, is that we would grow in our faith. And as we're in the faith longer and longer, we would be developing the character traits of a mature Christian. And so I would say that this material can be applied to anyone who wants to be used by the Lord in some capacity, official or not. And so Paul then, he presents us here with this material. Godly characteristics for those that want to live godly in Christ Jesus. So let's begin to unpack them. Paul, he says this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading from, and the Bibles that we kind of hand out around here are English Standard, it uses the word there, overseer. If, if you're reading a different version, there's a myriad of other ways that this word is interpreted. And so the King James Version, the New King James Version, instead of overseer, it says bishop. The New Living Translation, it uses the phrase church leader. For much of the study this morning already, I've been using the word elder. Now, I, I like the term overseer. I kind of like that. And the reason why I do is I think more than any of the other words, it does a real good job of describing the responsibility of the person that fills that role. What's the responsibility of an elder, of a bishop, of a church leader? To offer oversight. They are an overseer. And by that, what Paul's going to mean, and we learn this as we study this term throughout the New Testament, is it's a person that provides spiritual oversight to a local congregation of believers. That's not the only thing they do, but it's one of the key things that they do. They offer spiritual oversight to a body of believers, a church. Now, there's a reason why the different versions use so many different words here. And there's even more than what I've just described here. And the reason is it's because in various places, as this role is talked about, as it's being described in various places, the author of those passages chose different Greek words for the title of that particular thing. 
And so in some place, they're going to use the word bishop. Other places, they'll use overseer. Other places, elder. Some places, it's a Greek word where we get the word presbyterian or presbyter. Pastor is used in some places. Shepherd is used in some places. And as you read those passages, it's very evident. We're not talking about different people with all those different terms. We're talking about the same position. And so all those different words are used here to refer to the same person or persons, the one who has spiritual leadership and oversight over a congregation. I'll give you some examples. This is from Acts chapter 20. I don't know if it's worth turning there because we're only going to be there a second. If we're inside, we throw it up on the screen here. But there in Acts chapter 20, Paul calls for elders. He calls for the elders of the church to come to him in the city of Ephesus. You may, from the city of Ephesus, you may recall when we studied Acts chapter 20. He stopped off at Miletus. He called for the elders to come to him 35 miles away because he wanted to have a meeting with them. Acts 20, 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, 10 or 11 verses later, talking to that group of elders, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so one place he calls them elders, another place he refers to them as overseers. We see the same thing in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1 verse 5, he tells Titus to appoint elders in every town. And then in verse 7, when he's explaining what that elder should be like, he says, because an overseer needs to be as God's steward above reproach. One place he calls them elders, another place he calls them overseer. Same position, two different words that are used. And again, there's five or six different words that are used throughout the New Testament to describe these individuals. And so if you're reading a version that says bishop, if you're reading one elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd, whatever, we're talking about the same thing. Now, going back to verse one, notice, there's two other things in the verse that I want to draw your attention to. Notice first, Paul says, he uses that word aspires, at least in the English Standard Version. That's how it's translated. He said, this saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Now, that's a verb, and it literally is translated as to stretch oneself out after. To stretch oneself out after. Now, in our minds, you know, we think of movies or maybe people we know. We all can have in our mind the person that aspires to a particular position or a particular place that will do anything to get that position. They'll step on who they need to step on. They'll belittle who they need to belittle. They'll do whatever it takes because they aspire to a certain position. Obviously, that is not at all what Paul has in mind when he uses that phrase, aspire. What Paul is pointing to is the person that has a godly aspiration. It's the person that wants to serve God, and they want to serve God's people, but not for personal gain. They want to do so for that person's gain, those people's gain, and ultimately for the glory of God. That's the one that Paul has in mind when he says that they aspire to this position. He said they aspire to a noble task. First thing about this idea of aspire, nobody can be forced to be an elder. You can't manipulate them. You can't force them. You can't guilt them into becoming an elder. You can do it, but it's not going to be good. I can tell you that. Paul calls attention to the fact that the person personally 
aspires to that role. He personally stretches out after that particular role. A healthy church can't have people that are serving in the role as elder because it's their turn. I did it last time, it's your turn, you have to do it this time. So the first qualification is that the person wants to be in this position of leadership. They want to serve God and they want to serve his people. The first real qualification is it is born from within. God has birthed within them this desire to serve in this particular role and to serve others in this particular way. And almost certainly, I don't even know if I would add the word almost, certainly what you're going to see is before they're even named to that position, they're going to essentially be serving in that position because they love God and they love others and they want, that's what they want to do with their life, whether they have a title or not to do it. So that's the first thing, this aspiration for this position. The second thing that Paul says in verse 1, he says, such a person that aspires to that office desires a noble task. Maybe your version says desires a good work. Now that adjective noble or good, that if you will, that expresses the excellence of the work. This is a good thing to aspire to. The second word there, task or work, that expresses kind of the difficulty of the work. And there are many that go into ministry for the title. I want to be named as the pastor. I want to be named as an, a leader of this congregation. I want to be named as a bishop. I want the title. I want to be able to come in here and people will say, this is pastor so-and-so. And people will immediately know that I'm a spiritual leader here because I have the title. And many people go into the ministry for that reason. And that's a sad reason to go into the ministry. Many people go into the ministry and expect others are going to serve them because they now have the title and they now have the parking space closest to the door. Spiritual leadership in the church is not about titles and it's not about receiving honor and it's not about receiving glory. It's about working hard to expand God's kingdom. There's many others that go into the ministry thinking it's going to be, oh, it's going to be so great. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be lovely. I'm just going to go, and each day I'll sit under any one of these trees, and I'll have my Bible and one of these nice new blue chairs, and I'll sit back, and I'll just spend my day with Jesus. Paul says, you know, that's not the sort of ministry that I'm familiar with. Ministry is hard. Paul says it's a noble task. It's a good work. Ministry is hard. It's work. And we all know that work is tiring. So if you think you're going to go into the ministry because then you will only have to work a few hours on a Sunday morning and perhaps a couple of hours on a Wednesday evening, well, I, I have some news for you. There's a 17th century Bible commentator. His name was John Trapp, 1600s. He said this, ministry is a good work, but it is a hard work. The ministry is not an idle man's occupation, but it is a sore labor. And so whether you're working full-time for a local church or ministry, or you work a full-time secular job, and then in your, so to speak, off hours, you lead a ministry in some way, or maybe you just simply serve a couple of hours each week or a weeknight here and there, you need to know this, that while ministry is great, and it's awesome, and it's noble, and it has eternal purposes, it's also pretty physically and emotionally 
and sometimes even spiritually draining. And the effective minister, and, and by that I don't mean you know the pastor, I'm just talking about anyone that is serving God in any capacity. The effective minister will almost certainly be physically and mentally tired as he or she pours themselves into the ministry work that they happen to be doing. And so Paul here in verses 2 to 7 is going to unpack the type of person that needs to serve in that good and noble task. His point is this. He's trying to communicate that a good and noble and honorable work requires a good and noble and honorable individual to do that work. And he begins to name those qualifications. Again, the character and the temperament of the person. And so going to seminary, that doesn't qualify a person for spiritual leadership, not necessarily. Being a good talker, you're such a good speaker, you should be the pastor. Being a good talker doesn't qualify a person for spiritual leadership. Natural gifts, even spiritual gifts, don't qualify that person. There are churches, you give enough money, you can be an elder of the church. Your financial situation doesn't qualify you for spiritual leadership. What qualifies a man for spiritual leadership is their godly character. And so, since that is the case, Paul says, he begins... He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, you'll know, you'll notice, the way that this whole section is written, those words must be apply to every term. So it says, must be above reproach. You can read it, must be the husband of one wife, must be sober-minded, must be self-controlled. Are you with me? Okay, so it's only written once, but it applies to each of the terms that follow. And a person that is above reproach, literally, it means nothing to take hold upon. The idea is that nothing in this man's life can Satan or some unsaved person take hold upon to criticize or attack the person, the church, or the faith in general. Oh, that guy, such a hypocrite. Let me tell you what I saw him do. You see what I'm saying? They can take hold of something to criticize the person, the church, and ultimately the faith. King James here doesn't use the word above reproach. It uses the word blameless. Now, I think that's an unfortunate translation, or or perhaps over years, it it may not mean exactly what it it used to mean. And the reason is because a lot of times I think we see the word blameless and we think a person that is perfect and without sin. That's not at all what Paul is trying to communicate because he can't be saying that the overseer must be without sin because then nobody would be qualified to serve in the position of an overseer. If blameless meant sinless, we'd all be disqualified. So what Paul is referring to is a man with an overall good reputation. What Paul is talking about is the fact that there's no charge of serious wrong that can be sustained against it. Somebody can bring it up, sure, but you have a little trial, so to speak, and you're like, yeah, that's not true. Nothing can be sustained against that particular person. Nothing that people can say is, you know, that guy is just a fraud, and here's the evidence of it. I was at a wedding. I did the wedding a while back, and after the wedding, we were at the, the place we eat and all that kind of stuff, and they had a little bar up there where people could go get their drinks and all that stuff, And there was a fella up there, must have been a very good-looking fella, bald, just like myself. And from behind, it looked a lot like me. And this fella's up at the bar, and he's getting what he's getting, whatever. But he's playing the ladies at the bar. 
how you doing? You look nice tonight. You know, this kind of stuff. This guy's like picking up chicks at the wedding. And there was another person that saw the back of this guy's head and thought it was me that just did the wedding, now picking up chicks at the bar. And she just, she, you know, went on her way. And then she was talking a little later and saw me standing off on the side. And she said to a friend, she said, you know, I don't like that pastor. How come you don't like the pastor? He seemed very nice. You have no idea. I saw him up at the bar playing ladies or whatever. It wasn't true at all. Obviously, it wasn't me. But the point is, if it was me, it completely ruined the testimony that I had an hour earlier as I was sharing at their wedding. Are you with me? I don't need to go too much more into depth there. And so if indeed that was the reality, I would have failed in that qualification there of there being something that somebody could grab a hold of and criticize myself, the church, or the Lord. Paul goes on in verse 2. He says that the overseer must be the husband of one wife. Now, just a quick super point. I don't think it's what Paul is saying, but there are some traditions within the Christian church that say that the person that fills the role of a pastor, or they might call it the priest, that they cannot be married. I think this verse here, it negates that idea altogether because Paul talks about the person being married. In fact, he says he wants that person to be the husband of one wife. Second quick point, I think this certainly forbids the practice of polygamy among those that would lead the church. But considering the fact that the New Testament speaks against the idea of polygamy, I don't think that's also what, the, what Paul is getting at. We'll call that a fringe benefit application. Others have concluded from this verse uh, of being the husband of one wife that Paul is mandating that the elder must be married. Look, you want to rule over people and many of those people are going to be married, then you need to understand what it's like and so on. And so they've concluded that that the, is the point that Paul is getting at. I don't think that's the point either. Paul himself wasn't married, at least not at this time of his ministry in the latter 30 years or so of his life. Jesus himself wasn't married, and he was pretty effective at ministering, so I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. There's a number of churches and denominations that have interpreted this as preventing the person that has been divorced and remarried from ever serving in that role as elder. And the thinking goes that if they end up getting remarried, well, then they are no longer the husband of one wife. They've had two wives and so on and so forth. There are some denominations that go so far as if an elder is a widower, that that disqualifies him if he remarries somebody else. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. Literally, the phrase is a one-woman man. The husband and one wife, literally a one-woman man. And so I think the character trait that Paul is requiring is that the man's love, the man's affection, his heart is given to one woman and one woman only, and that is, if he's married, his lawful unwedded wife. And so that means that the biblical leader is certainly not going to be running around with other women, adultery. That disqualifies them from the position of pastor, from elder, and so on. But not only that, I think it goes much further than the physical. And I think it also means that he's not running around flirting with other ladies or seeking to attract other women to himself, like that guy that was standing at the bar in that particular instance. And so even if that pastor, that elder, never his behavior never leads to that point of consummation, it's still not the qualification of the person that's going to serve in that particular role because he is a one-woman man. 
This person is not going to be sitting around viewing pornography. They're not going to be daydreaming about other women. They're not going to be going online and developing intimate relationships and having intimate conversations with others. He is the husband of one wife. He is a one-woman man. Paul says that is an absolute requirement of the elder. He goes on in verse 2, and he says that the elder must be a man that is sober-minded. Now, often we hear the word sober, we think of, you know, slow on the booze, easy on the road, that kind of thing. We think of a person that's not given to alcohol or drunkenness. That's not the sense Paul is using the term here. He's going to address that area a little later, but that's not what he's using here. And that's why some versions translate this as temperate or vigilant or some other versions here. And so that can, it can be applied, certainly temperance, to alcohol and the like. But I think Paul's more pressing concern is that the elder is going to be a person that avoids extremes, particularly in spiritual matters. That the man of God that serves a local congregation as a leader, that they have demonstrated themselves to be a person that's reliable. That they've uh, demonstrated themselves to be a person that is trustworthy. That they're not going to be tossed to and fro with wide swings of vision or emotion or mood or even an action. Certainly, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians, they're not going to be carried away by every wind and doctrine. They are the type of person that's able to face life's circumstances. Even the difficulty, difficult things of life, they can face life's circumstances, take a deep breath, and then move forward in those circumstances. All right, Lord, here we go. And move forward right in them. They're steady. They're the type of person that others, in this case a congregation, can settle under their care. They can entrust themselves to that person's leadership. I read a commentator, he said that a sober-minded individual is a person that keeps their head in every situation. Paul says they, they must be sober-minded. The next thing he says is self-controlled. That is that an elder must not only talk well, talk all about Jesus and God and his love and so on, but they need to walk well. Not just a person that knows every fact in the Bible and can point you to every single doctrine and explain it properly, but a person that lives those doctrines. They don't just talk well, they walk well. Other versions use the words good behavior, some orderly, and the idea there behind the word orderly is it's this idea of well-ordered in their personal habits, the life that they're living. An elder must be a person that practices what they preach, in the, not only while they're an elder, but in the days leading up to becoming an elder. They must practice what they preach. As an old preacher, he said, there's two sides to the gospel. There's the believing side, and there's the behaving side. Or as James said, our Lord's brother in the New Testament epistle, they have a faith that shows itself and demonstrates itself by its works. I like how Guy King said it. He said, Paul is stressing here that the ministry of the life backs up the ministry of the lip. They're a person that lives out the faith they profess to have. He says also in verse 2 in the English Standard Version, he uses the word respectable. Now, not all versions have that word or, or really anything uh, synonymous with that word. And the reason why is, and remember earlier I said there's either 15 or 16 character traits 
What many other versions, they pair this up with self-controlled before. That's why you get 15 traits. Others separate them. But this person must be respectable. And again, that's a person whose walk matches their talk. Paul goes on, he says that the person must be hospitable, literally loving the stranger. And you know, I, help, I couldn't help but think of the Lord here. Because like God, what the elder must be is a person who welcomes all that come. The good person, the bad person, the pleasant person, the difficult person. They're glad to see them and they're welcome, they welcome them in and they're ready to minister to that person. The person who is hospitable, his life is characterized by a willingness to receive others to whatever sort of care they might need. Physical care maybe, spiritual care, emotional care. They're willing to give it. Lastly, in verse 2, Paul says, they must be able to teach. Now, teaching is one of the main responsibilities of an elder or a pastor of a congregation. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of that. This doesn't mean, however, that the person has to be the Sunday morning preacher and, and skilled, if you will, in that particular area. But it does mean that they have to have the ability to turn to the scripture and explain the scripture. What it refers to, able to teach, it's a person that's able to provide instruction from the word of God that can be applied into a person's life. And increasingly, we're living in a day and age where folks are afraid to take a stand on things. And so more and more we hear things, well, oh, I don't know, who am I to say, you know, what is right or wrong, or who am I to speak into your life? That's not going to be the hard attitude of a pastor, especially not, or certainly not when it comes to eternal matters that are revealed to us in the scripture. And so this elder, these elders, they don't need to speak into every single area of every single person's life. But into the areas that the scripture speaks into, they do need to be ready to speak into those areas. And they need to know the word in order to do it and draw people to the word and the heavenly wisdom that comes from it. That's required of the man that would be an overseer in God's church. Paul goes on in verse 3. And here now he, he's talking a little less about what's going on inside of the person that would be an elder and now how they're interact, interacting with other people, obviously as a result of what's going on inside of them. And so, again, remember those words must be, they carry over. So the overseer must not be a drunkard, must not be violent but gentle, must not be quarrelsome, and must not be a lover of money. He says he must not be a drunkard. Other versions simply translate this as given to wine. The more literal translation is sitting long with the cup. And the idea is not nursing the cup, but hey, give me another, give me another, give me another. Sitting long with the cup. Now Paul uses the word wine, which was pretty much the only form of alcohol in that day. Some cultures in that day they had forms of what we might today call beer. Alcoholic beverages today that we call hard liquor wasn't really even thought of then. And so Paul's point, however, would certainly include all of those substances. And I would add mood-altering drugs as well. Now, we do know that Paul elsewhere encouraged, or if you will, he granted permission to Timothy to drink a little wine because Timothy was having some stomach health problems and the water wasn't the cleanest things of all, and a little wine would help. It would kill some of those bugs that were 
floating around inside of him. And so Paul would write in 1 Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And so Paul granted him permission and maybe even encouraged him, it's okay, Timothy, you can have a little wine. His point here, though, in chapter 3, so therefore his point here in chapter 3, it can't mean that he's talking about complete and total abstinence from alcoholic beverages. Otherwise, he would have told Timothy, you know what, you just got to stay strong, Timothy, or, or something like that. So it can't mean complete and total abstinence. What he is clearly saying, though, is that the overseer of God's people cannot sit long over the cup. He certainly can't be a drunkard. And we know that because that's an admonition that not only he mentions here, but that's an admonition that Paul gives to everyone that names the name of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, he says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. That's a New Living Translation. It's just so incredibly straightforward and clear, this idea of drunkenness. And so while this word does not prohibit godly leaders from drinking an alcoholic beverage, I think it certainly seems to discourage it. In the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31, there's a word of wisdom written to this guy, Lemuel. Some think that's uh, Solomon. But anyhow, written to this man, Lemuel, it says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, to drink wine or princes to drink strong drink, lest they forget the law and pervert the judgment. If you're going to lead, you need to be ready to lead at all times. And your mind can't be altered in any way. And so wisdom in that proverb would dictate that the leader take great care in this area. Not a drunkard. Paul says in verse 3, not violent, but gentle. Some versions, not a striker. You can't can't go punch people. This refers to a person that's quick-tempered, or not quick-tempered. It refers to a person that's ready with the fist. Oh yeah, you want to fight about it? No, I don't want to fight about it. All right, it's that person. A person that's not given to physical acts of violence. The person that's appointed an overseer of a local congregation must not resort to acts of violence to settle a matter. And even more than that, I think it goes to a person that isn't readily losing their temper. Paul says instead they must be gentle. A couple different versions use words like they must be patient. They must be long-suffering. I like that. I don't like the term in my life, long-suffering, but I like the word because I think it really describes what we go through when we exercise patience. We suffer long. A few different long-time pastors commented on this verse. One said this, it's the quality of mind, the quality of heart that makes allowances for the slow, slowness, the awkwardness, and even the rudeness of others. If you're serving as a ministry leader, you're going to encounter some of those things. Another said this, it's the temperament which refrains from standing on one's own rights and under the inspiration of love concedes, forbears, and is no aggressive partisan. They're going to sacrifice, that's fine, we can do it that way, that's okay, I don't need to have my own way. Warren Wearsby, maybe you know that name, he said, it's the, pa- the pastor must listen to people and be able to take criticism without reacting. They're not a striker. They're not going to force their own way. You think of Jesus on the cross, Lord, they don't know what they do. So often in ministry, the people you're trying to minister to that might lash out at you, 
they don't really know what they're doing. And so you don't take it personally. You don't, you know, that's it, forget it, or uh, this kind of thing. Paul goes on in verse 3. He, again, he says, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. I think the previous phrase referred to settling matters with the fist. This one involves settling matters with the tongue, quarrelsome. The elder, the leader of a body of believers, the ministry leader in any way, must not be a person that's looking for a fight. They can't be a person looking to put everybody straight. You just give me a minute with them, I'll take it. That's concerning. Why do you want to have an argument? Because I like to put people straight. I understand. Now, Jude chapter 3 tells us that we are to contend for the faith. And so you may get into a conversation with other people, but there is a way to contend for the faith without being contentious. And there are some people that love to be contentious. Arguing about every little thing, insisting on their own rights. Again, quoting Wearsby, he said, short tempers do not make for a long ministry. And that's the reality. Paul says in verse 3 that they are to be not a lover of money. Now, money in and of itself is not wrong. It's not evil. It, is, it just is what it is. It's a neutral thing. Guy King, he said this, Gold may be a godsend, but beware, it may alternatively be the devil's bait. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 6, he would say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of money. And here Paul says that the elder cannot be a lover of money. Money cannot be the ruling desire of that overseer's life. And it cannot be the ultimate factor of how they decide what they're going to do. You know, I, hey, I'm serving as an elder of this church. I got a new job offer. And man, they're paying me a boatload of money more. I'll see you. I'm out of here. I'm moving. Well, maybe God is calling you to move. But please, don't let it just be about the new salary you're going to get in a new city that determines that decision. Where would God have you to be? They cannot be a lover of money. And the elder, the deacon, those folks, they're going to be overseeing the, the resources of a congregation. If they're a lover of money, it's just a matter of time before they get into trouble. And so in the same way that Paul says that the, the love of money is the root of every kind of eatable out in the world, the love of money is the root of every kind of evil inside the church as well. And so this person may not, cannot be a lover of money or covetous. Maybe that's a word you're a little more familiar. And I appreciate the word covetous there because I stopped thinking a little bit about money and I, I begin to think a little bit more about desiring, longing for, hungering for something that somebody else has that I want for myself. And I think Paul is here talking about money but I think we can make application to other areas as well. And so Paul could be talking about other people's positions. So the church down the street, they have 1,000 people. We only have 500 people. My goodness. Man, if I could have that congregation or whatever. Why are you longing after somebody else's thing? Why are you longing for somebody else's church, their facility, their platform? It's not a good place for the person that's leading in a body of work to be. Because a covetous person is never satisfied with what they have. They always want something more and demanding more. Paul says such a person's not fit for to lead in that way, at least not yet. They need to grow in that area. He goes on in verse 4. Who's getting hot? Anybody else here a little warm? Amen. It's good. A good sweat. Get all that, those impurities out. Let's go on. Verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, 
keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The one who aspires to have oversight in God's church is one who has proven his ability to shepherd others. And the, the most prevalent example of that is their own household. Their own household reveals their ability to lead others. It lies right there in their family. Now, it's certainly true that a child may rebel even from a good home. But the question then has to be asked, is the rebellion because of his parents or despite the efforts of his parents? I think that's an important question to be asked of the one who aspires to be an elder in God's church. At the very least, what this passage is talking about is that that pastor, that elder, that they can't be one thing at home and then another thing at the church. Because eventually that stuff's going to work it out and the kids at home are going to rebel against this pretend guy down at the church. And so Paul talks there about this idea of managing their own household well. They're living it there implementing it there as much as they are with anyone else that they might lead. Now, there's another quick note about verse 5. Notice he says here, he asks that question, for how will they care for God's church? Notice that phrase, care for God's church. Earlier in verse 1, we said one of the key responsibilities of the pastor and the elder is to be an overseer. Here now we have a second responsibility, and that is that they are to care for God's church. Lead the church and care for the church. An elder is not a despot, a pastor. is not a, you do what I say, because I'm the pastor and God speaks to me. They're not even a benevolent ruler, nice, but still the one in charge, don't mess with them. They're not even that. Rather, they're one who guides the people of God as a shepherd guides his sheep. This word care here, it's used only one other time in the New Testament, twice in one other passage in the New Testament. It's the passage of the Good Samaritan describing the type of care that that good Samaritan gave to the man that had been mugged and beaten up and robbed and left for dead. And the Samaritan comes alongside of him, takes him up, and begins to care for him. That's the way that the word is, that's the only other way the word is used. It's a word which describes tender, compassionate, sacrificial care for another person. That's what Paul says that the elder is to do in the local congregation. They're not a despot. They're not a dictator. They lovingly care, sacrificially care for others. He goes on in verse 6, they must not be a recent convert. Reason? Because he, might be, he will become, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Not a recent convert. Literally, that translates as not newly planted. The work of an elder, it requires men of experience, men of understanding in the faith. It requires a person that has had time to grow long enough, like newly planted, so that they can begin to set roots in their walk with God. That's what we're referring to here when he says not a recent convert. Now, of course, some people mature faster than others. And also, age is no guarantee of maturity in the walk. And somebody could be 70 and still be relatively uh, a novice, if you will, in the faith. Age doesn't mean anything. Or even being, in, I've been a Christian for 50 years and still be a very self-centered, self-focused person. So length of time in the faith doesn't mean anything. 
But the reality is, as it said, time is often the best teacher. And it allows for perspective. And the position of an elder, it calls for a man that has lived the life and they've walked the walk over an extended period of time. It calls for the man that has experienced many of the things that those they care for are going to experience. It calls for a person that, in having experienced those things, have recognized, lived with the faithfulness of God. And they've grown in that area. And they can point somebody else to that area as well. You know, God is faithful in this. You can trust him. And so they must not be a recent convert. Now notice, however, the main reason why Paul says you don't want a a recent convert. His concern is not, don't put a recent convert there because he's going to mess the people up. That's not the point he's making. His concern is for that person. He says, you don't want to put a recent convert in that position, or they may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. His concern is for that person. So again, we're not just trying to fill positions. We got to have a youth worker because you got to have a youth ministry or whatever. And I'm going to put the wrong person in that position and damage that person, but at least we have the position filled. That's not Paul's heart. Nobody will fill that position because I care about you as an individual. You see where we're going? So he talks about this idea here. He says, or they may become puffed up with conceit. It's a neat picture that Paul is painting. The word could be translated as to raise a smoke or to emit a smoke. Think about, you know, you're cooking at the grill and all of a sudden the smoke comes up and it gets in your eyes and you can't see anything. Or you're standing over the campfire or fires from Toronto. They come down and you can't see anything or breathe anything any longer here. You're blinded by the smoke. Paul says they will become blinded by the position, by the power, by the authority that is theirs. And they will be blinded, as he says there, with pride and conceit. He mentions the condemnation of the devil. That's the same thing that brought the devil down. The devil wasn't always the devil. He was one of the angels of God. He went by the name Lucifer. But because of his pride, Isaiah chapter 14, because of his pride, he was lifted up in that pride and he wanted to become like God, that people would worship him like God. And that pride led to his condemnation. Paul's concerned for this person. He says, don't put him in that position too early, lest they be lifted up with pride. And then finally, verse 7, he says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of a devil. I kind of find this one a little bit surprising. Like, what what do I care what the outsiders think or whatever? They don't know what it means to be a Christian. You know, a lot of times the unbeliever is a pretty good judge of character. They're around it. They know the person that's a fake. They know the person that is snowing other people and so on. And so Paul here, he talks about the potential leader. Again, pastor, elder, ministry leader. I would add, you're serving God in any way. Usher, security person, nursery worker, Sunday school worker, whatever it might be. If you're God's representative, that person must represent God well. And they must have the, the character traits of a godly individual outside the church walls, even as we would assume they would have them inside the church walls. Paul, the phrase he uses, well thought of by outsiders. The question reasonably needs to be asked, does this person have a good reputation among unsaved people with whom they interact? Those men that are appointed to serve as elders are to be of such character that even people of the world, 
can look up to that person and see in them an example of what a follower of Christ is to be. Again, because the world is often a pretty good judge of hypocrisy. And this whole idea of, well, the world's the world. You've got to be like that way in business. That's not the, the heart of an elder. The elder is more interested in pleasing God than building their bank account or whatever it might be. And so the, the man appointed to be an overseer of a congregation has to be of such a character and reputation that even those outside the body of believers would say, you know what, that man has a good testimony of what it means to be a Christian. And they would testify to your truthfulness, your honesty, your integrity. And so with that then, Paul, he closes out, he comes to an end of his instructions to Timothy. These are the type of men you should look for to appoint as overseers and those that are going to care for the flock of God. Again, notice all character things. All things that every one of us can devote ourselves to. I don't have time to go back to school. It's not about a degree. I don't have time for this or to be able to do that or I don't have the ability to speak like this. It's not about any of that. It's about your character. And that's certainly something every single one of us can get into the presence of God and have him begin to mold into the shape that he wants it to be. And I would encourage you with that. And again, maybe you'll never be an elder of this church or any church. You can certainly be a mature Christian, and you should be. And it should be what each one of us is living our lives for, striving to become in the good sense. Next week, or two weeks actually, when we come together for this passage, deacons. We'll unpack that. Amen? All right, let's pray together. So, Father, we, uh, I pray, Lord, that this message, among other things, it would emphasize sort of that reality that we're not playing around here. We're not just trying to become people with titles and positions and the like. But we want to be a people that honor you and that are true before you and that put aside hypocrisy and walk in integrity. And certainly, Lord, we pray that for each one of us here that serve as pastors, for those of us that serve as elders, for the ministry leaders that we have. But, Lord, that, that's really the heart I hope every one of us has. And so, Lord, by your word, we prayed in the beginning, would you kind of cut down to the deep places and challenge us. Reveal some places we tucked away that we forgot even noticing, that just became a part of who we are, so that we might be more like your son. And I believe that's a prayer that uh, is according to your will, so we ask that you would hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.